I think pretty much once they're given real opposable thumbs, then 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 the machines will be able to do what they need to do to be a little more autonomous in that sense, right? But until that happens, uh, depends on who's programming. <laughs> guys welcome to overcrest i'm chris and i'm jake got a fun episode for you that's right it's a follow-up to uh an episode that we did with the tim from BBI. Brisha from bbi yep and when i was writing up all of the things that i wanted to talk to tim about a lot of it had to do with engineering yeah and i left as i talked to him and as we kind of started to unravel his story i chucked all that in the trash right because because i realized such an interesting story such an interesting story plus i knew that dimitri orlov Okay. Would love to talk with us. That's He's awesome. A super and cool who is dude. Dimitri? Dimitri is a uh, head of, uh, oh boy, I'm going to blow his this. His official title? I don't know what his official title is, but what his is... official title to me is super <laughs> awesome dude who makes really cool shit at BBI. I love it. He has so, a perfect title. Yeah, he owns a 3D scanning company with Patim, and they have a wheel company that they do. Wow. He's but a... Tim should probably change his official title to that. The super cool, super su- cool, awesome dude. That yeah, makes I mean, stuff. that makes a lot of sense because it's absolutely true. And it sounds more interesting anyway. Probably not as interesting to investors. So what Maybe. do you do? I'm just a super cool engineering guy. What do you guys know? Yeah. That probably isn't going to fly yeah. on, on LinkedIn. Not, not, <laughs> you don't even so have a LinkedIn, do I you? Do. Oh, do you? I don't do anything with I it. I tried but... to find you one day, I think, and I couldn't. It's there. Okay. Do you know Overcrest have... is on LinkedIn? We are. Did you put us on there? Yeah, like, it's me and Jeff, and we couldn't find you. <laughs> <laughs> i'm on there you just gotta okay. look a little bit harder I'm, I, I'm there it says like photographer for performance bw magazine it's so okay just absolutely absolutely ancient anyway dimitri's gonna come on and i'm gonna talk to him about obviously i i start digging into people find out what they're about who they are and it always seems like what they actually do mm-hmm. is interesting mm-hmm. but not always the most interesting part right well yeah that's what makes people interesting right humans yeah it's but what you what do they do it's, it, what you do is a big part of who you are you're right it but is a huge it's more part. than just your day-to-day duties yeah. anyway that, title. that's obvious so, Anyways, so before we get into that interview with yeah. dimitri what have you got for us yeah let's take a minute to talk about petrol box petrol box is the number one subscription box for do-it-yourself car enthusiasts i thought you were gonna say number one subscription box i was like wow that is incredible well for for DIY for, car enthusiasts, yeah, absolutely. which is still awesome because that is what we want to focus on. That's Why would you want any other subscription box other than this one? Each month they select. I don't have any other subscription boxes and I've never even considered. I, I, I consider food. I can. I don't do that either because it's always I'm like, it always shows up and I'm always like, eh. <laughs> like I don't really want it yet. Like it looks good. I'm like, eh. It's, it's, and it tastes better than you think too. A lot of times, a lot of times it does. But it's you don't the, cook anyway, so when those show up, I do. Do you? Yeah. Okay. It, we Anyways. make a thing out of it because I usually sign up for like a few three months or whatever. And yep. Then, and then uh, whatever the deal program is, whatever the deal program is. Well, this you can get a deal program as well. Use the code Overcrest at checkout, and you'll get six dollars off, which is better than any food box. Yes. And what comes in the box, Chris? What does food turn to? Poop. Poop. <laughs> and what does a t-shirt, some 10 millimeter sockets turn into? Fun surprises. You got tools, gear, magazines, supplies, and more to keep your ride smooth, as they say on their website. Nothing in your Petrobox will ever go to shit. That's all I can say. That's... I would hope not. Yeah. I so head over to Petrobox.com. not. Enter code Overcrest to get some discounts. Support them. It would be awesome just to, you know, reach out to some of our sponsors that or partners that 
support us. Yes, and, and support you by doing cool stuff. Have you noticed, Chris, a lot of podcasts sell mattresses mm. and... I don't know. I haven't even listened to a lot of podcasts lately, but yeah, like I don't know why it's always mattresses, Casper, Pearl, it's direct to consu- a lot of direct to consumer yes. stuff. What we do is we focus on and hand select the partners that we actually like the product that we know you guys will too. So if you like us, when you have a product that we would like, oh yeah, that too. No, I was up. talking about our listeners though. We'll peddle your shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's not at all what the point is, Chris. Oh, I thought that's what no, you were getting at. No, we hand select what we actually like and what fits what we think our listeners will like. Yes. So we believe in this stuff. Yeah, it's but also poop. we'll peddle your shit. Okay, If good. we like yes, it. Yes, sure, but we have to like if it. If we like it. Yes, exactly. So hit us up. We'd be happy to it's work with it. not at all where I was going with that, but sure. But it works. <laughs> <laughs> MyPetrolBox.com. Check them out. All right, Jake, you go home. I'm going to talk to Dimitri. <laughs> that sounds good. All right. Dude, Dimitri, thanks so much for coming to hang out. Thanks for having me, man. Pretty, I thought this would be fun. a this would be a great follow up to uh, hanging out with Batim, talk to you as well, get some other thoughts, and just kind of hear a little bit about your story. My story, yeah. I, I mean, I get to hang out with Batim too. Um, it was fun uh, hearing his podcast on uh, on your on your channel, and uh, it's, I've, I've heard the stories didn't before. Know. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> um, heard most of it before um i i think he, he gets better at telling the stories and it becomes more concise and cleaner every time which is nice uh but it's uh yeah he's got quite the life um part of the things that kind of uh made me like him a lot uh and, and kind of interested in what he's done and how he's done it you know and, and stood apart in the industry as a whole um so it's it's fun being around him um and we have a good uh good relationship between the two of us because it's, you know, he, he's got a mindset and I have a different mindset and kind of, I think they go hand in hand more and often than they don't. So it's been kind of allowed some of the crazier things to come to fruition because of that, you know? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to work with your, another version of yourself because that's definitely not going to get anything done and nothing interesting is going to happen. No, no. You know, having no. a yes man as in your yourself, isn't going to, isn't going to do anything. Um, so I, I, I asked Batem, I said, hey, man, you know, what should I talk to Dimitri about? And yeah. he gave me like this huge list of all this stuff. But I think we should talk about uh, roulette first, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> As in to 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 the moment you sit down to uh, just just nod stand up and walk away yeah yeah that's exactly it that's yeah, exactly yeah. what we should do this is this is speaking to dimitri and i going out after sema and uh well mainly me being an idiot and throwing a bunch of money at roulette and and losing uh every every single hey, time man, you, you you got me inspired and i was all about it and then for a minute it looked promising until it didn't <laughs> yeah, like, like, then, so... then i figured out how the house always wins <laughs> yeah they do they do they always have an angle that's absolutely true so I, I kind of started to learn a little bit about your history and from your name, you, you can almost infer that you're not uh, born here uh, no. just, or, or your, or your parents weren't born here or whatever the case may be. Where are you from? I am from Russia. I was born in Moscow. Okay. And it was, you were born on a very special day. I hear. Yeah. Very special day. Uh, came in with a bang as you could say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not a not a good one at that but uh yeah it was april 26 it was chernobyl um in 86 so uh i think uh from what my 
my mom has told me it's she she was in a hospital in Moscow and then at some point uh, I guess people started closing windows but no one knew anything for a couple of days you know but right um, nobody knew where the threat was going to be how far it was going to go where it was going to go but that was that was that how long were you in Russia as a child um I, I wouldn't say that long on and off I mean my 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 father's a journalist and he traveled a lot so my first four weeks of my life was in Moscow and I think uh, shortly thereafter we went back to India where my parents were living at the time and uh, the first three or four years of my life was in India um, and then we bounced back to Russia and then traveled here and there and then ended up moving to the U.S. in 1995. So where did your uh, kind of your formative years happen then generally if you had to Probably the U.S. Okay. Um, I'd say because, you know, like if you think back to your childhood, like before the 10s and 12s, you know, you're kind of like just a kid, right? Uh, kind of anywhere, you know, and I had some, I remember, you know, Russia pretty well. And, but I think the, the real experiences came in the U.S. just at least the ones I can better remember as well. You know, they were like, I was more aware of experiences as they were happening to me right and then i guess any kid is like that right and they they were more impactful at that point um for me yeah i think once you hit like 10 12 before that you're kind of just you're on like a almost a like generic a, in, yeah an intro level operating system for a child right like <laughs> yeah yeah a boot, boot program yeah, it's, it's, it's like a marble going down a track you don't really have control over where you're going you're not really autonomous no in any way, yeah. right? You're just kind of going along with the motions. Once you hit like 10, 12 years old, then I can see it in my daughter, she's turning 10. And you can see her starting to like have wants and desires that aren't influenced by input that I've given them. So it's like, it uh, it's no longer, beings, a, you know? yeah. yeah, they're saying it's not a beta operating system anymore. Right. She's full artificial intelligence. It's, we've, we... <laughs> so you, uh, you were educated in world finance. Is that kind of, what I understand? Yeah, I went to school for uh, economics, international affairs, um, that kind of stuff, trying to get into. Where was that? Where uh, did you go for school for that? GW in okay. DC. So, why, so that's George Washington University? Yeah. Why, why finance? That sounds like it's just um, like compared to what you're doing now, it sounds. Yeah, like so it was dry. kind of like, uh, I mean, growing up in DC is kind of the world you're in. And so um, had some familiarity with it. I mean, giving like my kind of international background, it was sort of close to home in that sense. Right. And so international business, international affairs was kind of a thing. Um, and when you're in DC, that's, you know, either legal politics, uh, international stuff, that's kind of the, the, the circle there. Right. And so um, kind of just go to study one of those things and there's a lot of job opportunities and kind of a huge world there for that. So um, got into it. Um, is you know it's pretty fascinating and interesting in its own way and um just kind of explored it uh, i went to work for consulting for the world bank for a little while just sort of doing projects there and um until i wasn't uh, and and then the, the wasn't bit is that you know i kind of i felt like came to the realization that i wanted to be hands-on with something and 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 make tangible things my way um later in life than I could have, should have, or I don't know, whatever, you know, and, um, was there, like a, was there was, anything that, did you feel like you just weren't creating anything doing the finance stuff? Is it like, what, well, there that... was a, 
yeah, it's a, it's like a complicated, like there's a, a bit of like a personal realizations and the reality of the situation and, and, and the reality of those types of uh, organizations, right? So the, the I think to have an impact that's lasting impact on something there is like you would devote 20 years to building the career by, you know, to, to climb the ladder and to become a, like useful there, right? And to have some sort of power to then change and make the moves to, to uh, make real differences, right? So change policies, change how things are done. Um, working uh, some of the institutions is just sort of revealed that there's very few people that are like that, that are really driving change or want to drive change in a, like a true real way. Um, a lot of there are people are just part of the system and they're either collecting paychecks or they're been there for so long, they don't know anything else and they kind of just keep going the way they were, right? So there's, I mean, this is going to get into like institutional flaws of something that size and that caliber, right? It's there's only so many things you can kind of do, achieve. Uh, you're bound by policies and global geopolitical situations and things like that. But for an individual person, it's either a career and you're always going to be swimming upstream there. And then the chances of making that impact are pretty slim. Um, and it just seemed uh, the organizations themselves seem to be kind of not always working in the interest of what they were supposedly serving uh, from a public perspective, right? So uh, on the back end, there's just a lot left to be desired. And I don't know if it's just because these are NGOs and they're funded by governments and things like that. You know, I feel like there were a bunch of smaller organizations that were more agile, that were more truer to their cause. Um, but it just didn't seem like a world that um, I wanted to be in, especially as I got a taste of what it was like to start kind of toying with cars and making things. Do you, uh, <laughs> do you feel like you were, you're right as you've watched like the World Bank and the WEF kind of evolve over the last 20 years? Do you think you made the right decision? Um, I think it was a decision. I don't know if there's a right or wrong decision per se, right? I mean, I could have stayed, persevered and, um, you know, stayed the course and see what happened. I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't think I can make that judgment. Um, I think it was uh, in the time it was a decision that I just sort of made for partly maybe personal sanity and just sort of, I know it was, it was a decision in the time and, and place, right. For me to, to kind of move on from that world. So what was the designing and creating world like when you decided that you didn't want to do the finance stuff anymore, you wanted to make something describe what it was like, what is the maker world like at that time? What are people doing? What is the software? What are, like, how did you dive into that? Well, before I realized I wanted to make anything, it was just like, I got a, uh, there was a local shop, uh, CPE in Maryland. That was uh, a buddy of mine started working as a machinist there and he was like, Hey, come hang out. Right. And I'm like, I didn't really know much about CNCs or anything like that. I was just there. Right. And then, um, and, uh, I was like, okay, cool. I'll come by after hours or whatever, check this place out. Right. And then come in, it's like a little warehouse. It's got a few CNC machines, two benders and things like that there. I'm like, oh, this is cool. It's a lot of big, heavy machinery, you know, it's kind of like, what does it all do? You know? And so you showed me that it's like, this thing does this, this thing does that. It's like, okay, cool. Um, and it kind of got me intrigued. I like the sort of the 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 physicality of it it was very tangible of outcomes you know like you put something in something comes out mm -hmm. um eventually right and then uh it was just intriguing um 
And so I, you know, just hanging out a little more with him and, you know, it's like, well, why do you, how does this thing work? You know, it's like, well, you push this button here, you do this, you know, this is how you set it up. And it's like, okay, cool. Like, well, how do you program it? And it's like, okay, well, this is, this is the software. It was like master cam two at the time or whatever. Um, it's like, well, what are you designing in? It was SolidWorks at the time, you know, it's like, okay, well make a box, program the box, put the box in the machine, machine the box, you know, it's like, yeah. okay, this, this is cool. Right. And so, um, started kind of toying with it on my own. And then some points, you know, occasional weekend nights turn into weekday nights, <laughs> turn into some other involvement, you know, where I started kind of toy with creating pieces, machining pieces, you know, and, and kind of conceptualizing stuff. And then, um, the learning was just by either being in the environment and, and just personal curiosity to try and find out what I could do, how I could do it. And then, um part of the thing was like i was not coming from a traditional education standpoint for approaching this industrial world right like i was felt like i saw things in a slightly different light um that uh, from a design perspective or from a manufacturing perspective you know there's certain things you have to know and kind of stick to that hasn't changed and you know, these are hard constraints of how to make something but then yeah. there's other things that you could approach with like well you know, there's this emerging technology or this piece of software that does something where people have been doing this, you know, and um, not having been in the engineering world or going from Formula SAE or, you know, going to engineering school, like I wasn't, my brain wasn't as confined to these constraints that were taught by, you know, for generations, right? So then I, in the very least, whether I knew it or not, and my own ignorance was prompted me to question the nature of certain things, right? So then kind of maybe found non-standard solutions to things and um, which led to some, you know, interesting problem solving and concepts and things like that. So um, what was the first thing that you made that you were proud of? You, you finally came out of the machine. It wasn't broken. It, it actually worked. It was like a thing like, wow, this is a thing. I made a thing. Um, I think, uh, at some point I made like a little Turner's cube on a CNC machine. A what? Um, uh, it's called a Turner's cube. It's a little cube that has a bunch of like each face has a pocket, a circular pocket in it. And then if you turn it on a lathe a certain way, you're going to get a cube within a cube within a cube. And then the last cube could potentially be loose. Right. And it's, it's in this solid block of aluminum, but you have this little cube. It's like a kind of a mind trick. Right. But if you, you can do the same thing on a CNC machine. So I did that and I was like, Oh, that's, that's kind of fun. You know, that was, it's, it, it's not early on, but it was kind of a thing that I meant to try and do. And it, it was interesting to do because I was something that CNC machinists do and me having done it, even though I could easily do it at the time, it just felt like, felt like a bit of a milestone. Like, okay, yeah, I, I, I got this. I made, I made a thing. I made a thing. I, made a thing. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I can't really remember one of the, any of the first things I've made. I mean, there's some memorable things that I've created, but all of them kind of one contributed to another contributed to the yeah. third. And then they just sort of cascaded from there. What is you your know? car life like at this time? So you're working in finance in DC, you're going to this guy's place to CNC stuff at night on the weekends or whatever, and it starts to get out of control. I mean, were you always in love with cars or did you kind of grow more in love with machines as you dealt with some of the machining no. and the intricacies? How did this work? Yeah. So I think, I think this, this, uh, I had a Mazda three at the time and, you know, I was kind of getting into like, Oh, let's, you know, let's change the taillights from this other 
Japanese version. Let's do this or that, you know, just getting, getting into the, it's like the forums were a big thing at the time and just sort of exploring the options, you know, um, doing lowering springs in a garage with a bunch of hose clamps to compress this, <laughs> you know, it's the standard, standard issue, uh, don'ts that you Idiocy, do yeah. as an, as an early, uh, car enthusiast. Right. And so, yeah. um, um, you ever shoot the strut cap across the room when the spring comes off? Holy no, I haven't man. had the pleasure. Oh, I, uh, I, I wisened up to the risks of that, uh, <laughs> before that happened. So, um, I know, uh, but I've always been like into cars. So my parents, uh, were kind of enough to buy me a bunch of Legos and I got into Lego Technic really early on. So I was building a bunch of things, making my own creations, right. And, uh, slap some Lego. I took apart an RC car and put a Lego body on top of it. You know, it was just sort of like, just as a kid, right. Just kind of toying with things. So I think coming around to car stuff, I tapped into something that I didn't really know about myself, you know, or maybe I wasn't aware of the competency I have for, for taking things apart and putting them back together. But now I could, I figured out that I could make things too, you know? So I think I was a car guy. I was always mechanically inclined i just wasn't never thought about it that way for whatever reason you know it's almost like I, that lego thing got put away when you thought you needed to grow up and then once you grew up and you had like a full-size it went right back RC to it, car yeah. you're just like right back oh i'm gonna take this yeah. like do the exact no same thing. i i mean for for real like i think back to those days a lot i was like man i was an idiot i should have known should have thought about that more often you know back in the day to kind of not deny that that was a but there was something from that to be done, you know, in, in the adult world to take Legos and, and then continue on doing Legos. As, Why didn't as, you think that influence took over? Was it something with your parents or like, I need to do this. This is what, this I is think, what you're supposed to do. Yeah, I think it was just sort of like, well, I wasn't too great in school. And so, you know, engineering degree was a little bit out of reach, I think, and uh, or hitting the requirements for that. Right. Um, and then uh, I think, being an immigrant kid, you know, there's a lot of pressure on kind of making it, right? And so uh, there's just sort of like finding something that's reliable. That's there's a there's a there's a job at the end of the line kind of thing, right? It was, you know, there's the international world is something that my parents were familiar with as well. So then there's some security in that, whether applicable or not, you know. And uh, so just kind of a from a immigrant survival perspective that was the logical thing to do um you know and i made making the leap was stressful in the sense that there was a lot of uncertainty as to what's going to happen me changing direction you know because that wasn't something that was on the it's not a road mappable thing right like doing this stuff especially in the car world and um and making the change was like okay well i i think i can make something of myself in this you know and so that was that was kind of a, a stressful thing but i kind of had just leaned into my skills and personal like capability and to see what can be done you know despite the kind of the risk overhead as, as to you know being that immigrant kid with no assets no nothing family has nothing you know in that sense. so there's a lot of there's no stability nothing to fall back on right and there's um so this was so, a big risk to to make this leap yeah, I mean, at the time it was, you know, in hindsight, like, I was like, well, you know, I'm glad I did. But at, at the time, it was definitely, like, a lot of unknowns, you know, especially being in, like, the D.C. area. There's not, like, you know, there's a car world there, but it's nothing like California or some other states, you know. But so it's different types of people my, with cars, man. 
it's it's yeah strange. i mean it's more collector people yeah, and things like money. that right yeah um they get tucked away for winter you know there's i mean there's still a great scene there but it's just it's different you know and um and i wasn't entirely into the you know h2o type crowd either right like um so there's between my understanding and visibility into the real car world there right and 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 making the decision to start doing more of that that was just that was pretty stressful at the time um although you know i was like well some of these skills aren't necessarily limited to car stuff you know so i i was doing some projects here and there that weren't car related there were you know furniture pieces or random little trinkets or science type things you know where um making devices or whatever it was just sort of you know if you can make things you can make lots of things right so right. um i always sort of saw thought of myself as more of like an industrial designer rather than automotive you know mechanical engineer type yeah person. but you had a mazda 3 that surely needed some stuff right did you make anything for that car yeah the place i was working at was was making things for those cars for the okay. mazda speed threes right and so um i don't know that i didn't really care to make things for my own car necessarily i just wanted to make things you know um i think for me the uh, the end goal is interesting, but it's, the process is very interesting, and and then kind of the innovation of it is very interesting. Um, so it wasn't necessarily to even support my own hobby. It has before, you know, and continue to do so now. But I, I it's just there's a. I think before I touch my own things, I'm always frustrated by the caliber that I'd like to go at you know at some of the projects that i want to tackle for myself i have to wait a little while until i have the luxury to be able to do that in the proper budget to do so um kind of knowing what i've seen knowing how we can do things you know and things like that so how did you what so what came after this mazda shop because obviously i think of the the mazda shop that you're at and i think of bbi and there's that's it's like leaps right i mean what you guys do there is is insane so how do you draw that line how did you progress beyond where you were there to where you are now. Yeah, the, uh, the Mazda shop did a lot of stuff. You know, they worked on BMWs and Hyundais and things like that. So it was just a bunch of like forced induction cars that they supported, built products for. Um, I, I grew that place and I moved on to just being a consultant. I realized that um, in the automotive aftermarket space, there's a lot of businesses that start up and continue to go that are, um, limited by the things they don't know about business, right? So I kind of turned into a consultant or morphed myself into a consultant coming in. Like I can help companies uh, with ideas or potential ideas or look at what they're doing, help them come up with these ideas and bring them to life in the marketplace, right? Not just as these one-off things, which are fairly easy, but as products, which means, you know, developing a concept it could be like an engine mount or intercooler and figuring out how to, you know, not only design it, how to test it, but also how to mass produce it. That is a cost effective and scaled and designed for the right marketplace, right? Um, uh, something for a Nissan GTR is different than what is it should be on like, I don't know, a Turbo Civic or something like that, right? Um, so I started doing the consulting thing. I was up and down the East Coast doing projects for various companies from headers to turbo systems to intercoolers to whatever you know so were you happy um, i it, i was yeah i mean i was happy that i was uh i was on my own and i was kind of 
I was getting an insane amount of uh, exposure to uh, like a, a, a large spectrum of companies that are working from bigger companies that just needed some extra help to tiny companies that are just like, hey, I want to make a part because I can't find it or it's been hard to find or whatever, right? Um, it's from individuals to corporations. And I got to see and ask a lot of questions of how things are behind the scenes for a lot of these things to learn the various approaches, the strengths, the weaknesses, you know, and kind of continue building up my, you know, library of observations about that industry. And so um, I was happy in that so I could find business, I could travel a little bit and, 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 and kind of dip into different industries from domestic to import to whatever, you know, and um, it was just stressful because, you know, you have to work for yourself and hunt for that business. And uh, for a lot of it's it's uh, product development is 100% an expense for a company, and it's very hard to either explain or justify or you kind of live with the, some of the constraints that that companies have for that kind of stuff, you know? Right. Yeah. So so you're out on these coasts. You're you're doing the consulting stuff, making you know working for a bunch of different other companies. How did you and Batim get together? Oh, actually, um, let me, actually, before we get to that, what was the scope of of the capabilities of creating things when you met Batim compared to what you are doing now. Right. So I'm trying to find like this foundation of how fast we've accelerated in maybe the last 10, 15 years of how since BBI started, like how fast things have moved. So I want kind of oh, want, yeah. like a foundation of where things were and how you met him and what it was like. Um, God, I, I think it was, I had, I had walked up to him one SEMA. I I have to look up what year that was, but that was probably like eight, nine years ago or something like that. Because um, I was just, yeah, I saw the brand from like the internet, right? I was on the East Coast. I never got to be up close, but I saw the brand. I saw what he was doing. I think he had a, uh, a Turbo S in the, in the Optima booth at the time um, with like the Apple, vintage Apple livery. Um, and it was cool. And, and he was, around i just sort of came up i think i said hi and i don't remember what we talked about if we even talked much but it was just something like i don't know i just wanted to make sure i was i was around i said hello right i don't know um you just wanted to do, like possibility of consulting work right i don't think i even i don't i don't think i even approached that i was just sort of like because i it just i was so far away from the world here in california right i was on the east coast and there's like it felt like a huge barrier, right? Which is part of the reason that I wanted to move out west is because um, I just wanted to be closer to this world. But I, I just, you know, meeting the Tim once and kind of acknowledging that he is a real person that I've seen on the internet kind of thing was, was a big thing. And it was kind of, it was motivating for me, you know, and um, SEMA was always interesting to kind of go to and see all the things that are being done and should be done or shouldn't be done or whatever, right? And then, um, but uh yeah it was like eight or nine years ago that i think i saw batim and then um another time was about six or oh no yeah yeah probably about that that long ago that i maybe shortly thereafter i actually flew over to the west coast to interview for some jobs and then i dipped down to huntington beach to say hello to him in person at the shop um and then that was like the first real conversation about like hey i want to be here i want to 
explored doing things with you, you know, and I think at the time BBI was just a little too, maybe not entirely prepared to take somebody on in-house, right? But it was, it was worth the conversation because uh, he was following what I was doing on Instagram, I guess it was around at that time. And then uh, I was following what BBI was doing. It was just sort of like, we knew each other, we're aware of each other. And maybe there would be some time in the future that things would be just right, right? Um, I did end up getting a job at 034 Motorsport in the Bay Area. I worked for them for about three years doing product development and, and kind of all the, all the engineering design stuff, which was uh, very fun. And it was a great team over there. And uh, was I that learned your a lot. first, like, not working for yourself anymore type of gig? Right. So that was, that was, uh, yeah, I came out of being a, contractor to landing a, like a full-time job there. I kind of, I don't think I ever gave up the consulting stuff. I just got more selective about it, but I, I, that was the first job and that was a real job doing like, was a product development engineer and doing design work. And that was like a proper title <laughs> and desk, like everything. Was Finally, something I can put on LinkedIn. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it was a, it was a true milestone in that sense, you know, like I, I was talking about like, you know, faked it till I made it for a moment, right? Like uh, that was the first step in making it, right? Where um, it was the justification that my transition on my own in, uh, to, to from international economics to tinkering, that so was, was it became any, a profession. Like, in that journey of leaving finance, working for yourself and finally getting a job at O34, was there any mistakes that you made? Were there any failures that you had that set you back? That you learned. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, plenty. Like there was, there was. As I was, you know, I think I hit the ground running at zero three four. But uh, somewhere in there, there was, you know, I mean, at any given point in life, there's that you don't know what you don't know, right? Thing. And so every once in a while, you know, that definitely comes and bites you in the ass, especially when you're dealing with things like engineering and precision and 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 developing things, right? You end up cornering yourself into something where you can't make it or you end up uh, coming across a weakness which you should have known had you been a real engineer kind of thing right um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of so there's definitely like uh, humbling moments um, you know maybe with materials or maybe with strengths and things like that um, but uh, I think one of the I'm, I'm to this day, I'm really aware of the things I didn't, like the education I didn't have and the background I don't have. So I, a triple check everything I do. I lean on those who do have that to help. And then um, I'm, I think humility is like one of the biggest things that I want to maintain at all times. Um, because I think that humility, especially in engineering, is the thing that yields a better result in the end because you're never overly confident about what you're doing, how you're doing it. And you're never going to go down that rabbit hole just because you think you're right. Right. I don't think I've ever met a humble engineer in my life. <laughs> uh, it's so rare. <laughs> I'm always, they're always like, they're just always just like, I feel like they're just waiting to explain to you something to you always. Oh yeah. They're yeah. Just, I mean, they're just like they're, ready. <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, that, that's for sure. Right. But I, I think in, in the process, I think you have to maintain maximum humility. There's too yeah. many situations where I've come across other engineers or, you know, accomplished designers that they're so sure of themselves, you know, but I, and granted that's backed up by skills and uh, experience and things like that. There's going to be many more calls that they can make that are like, 
have a higher probability of being correct, right? But what that closes them off from is exploring other ways of doing something, exploring new technologies or adopting new theories or concepts, right? So then the win on the reliability comes with a compromise on innovation, I would say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, I agree completely. So you visit Batam at SEMA, get a job at 034, you work for 034 in a while. How do you feel about, I mean, that's in, working in Mazda's on the East Coast, all of a sudden you're working at basically what is uh, an Audi Volkswagen primarily mm -hmm. tuner at 034. I've actually got 034 turn up tune on my Golf R and it's fucking awesome. Those guys are great. So, but is this kind of like, do you fall in love with Porsche then? Or, I mean, do you even really love Porsche and you just happen to work on them? How does this come together? Um, I don't know. I, I see for me, it's, I don't know if it's even specifically a love for a make and model, you know, it's um, working like a, a 991 GT3 under at the chassis level is not too different from like a BMW E90, what is it, what I, you know, like uh, McPherson Strut, multi-link rear, like, you know, just the engine is in the different, in the wrong spot, right? But, um, but it's, cars are kind of all the same, you know, in many ways, you know, um, I have uh, kind of digging into them, you kind of understand the, the, the little nuances that set one car apart from the other, you know, that what Porsche does that nobody else does, right? Not, or that other cars try to do, but they only do half of it, right? Can you pinpoint uh, that? Is it able, is it something you can put your finger on or is it more of like a, an enigmatic type of nuance? No, I think that, yeah, like for example, you can compare like a BMW M car to a, a 911, right? Like the BMW, you can see where they like, you start looking at the car from from the engineering perspective you kind of back out like okay well you know they've they could have used this material on controllers but they went to like a steel setup they could have built a nicer subframe but then they did this right and so you can see where the beam counters have been stepping in to shape the car you can see where the engineering team was maybe running out of time in the life cycle development right like these are two different cars but also performance models right obviously you can't like it's a little bit of like an apples and oranges thing, but um, it's interesting to see where those differences are and why they are, right? Why a BMW M is that way, why a Porsche 911 is another way. Um, and you kind of peel back the layers of the car, you can see how like the, you know, the construction of the car is different, everything is different, right? And I kind of start to really appreciate where um, some makers are pretty innovative with that, right? And some are not, as where they compromise, like uh, say Hyundai Genesis is very much like a BMW underneath it all, but the construction is quite different. Right. Um, it's a, because they need to hit a price point. So you can see where they started to give up ground in terms of performance engineering or quality, right? Um, so are you saying Porsche doesn't do that? Porsche, Porsche does it, but in, or they do it to a much lesser extent. You can see where they've done more homework. You can see that they've, uh, I think Porsche has a, I, would, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they had some sort of like list of like 10 commandments where they, that they create each car with, right? And say they've, they're the only ones who've minimally reduced those commandments since the start of their, their 911, right, uh, model. And so, uh, you know, they don't compromise on engineering. They don't compromise on materials. They try to hit the best marks they can within the constraints of whatever marketplace that they're trying to hit, right? And they do so really, really well. 
granted, you know, they, they fetch a higher price point, right. but I feel like they do it, you know, they, they, they do the extra 10% to finish the car. They do the extra work to make a better part. Right. And then it shows the cars perform like no one, no one else's do. Right. And there's something really interesting that can you imagine, (coughs) excuse me. I can't imagine being an engineer at being Hans at Porsche. He just designed the 991 and they're like, great job. You get an awesome job. And then the guy walks out the door, five minutes, walks back in and goes, all right, time for the next one. You got to do better. It's got to be like, cause you know, I'm not, I don't really love, I'm not in love with new Porsches. I don't have enough of experience with them to really understand. I've driven GT2 RS thing. I've driven some GT3 stuff like that, but I don't have like a huge wealth of knowledge on them, but I do know that they keep getting better, you know? And I'm wondering if that is a product of ideas or is it a product of technology evolving the tools that the, I, the engineers have to create the car with? Well, I think before you even get into that, there is a product roadmap. They probably know the next three generations of cars. They know exactly which things that they're going to hold back on and they, which things they're going to introduce. Sure. Like um, it, it's, I think that not to take away the romance of innovation, you know, like I think there is the, there is a, you know, it is a business at the end of the day and it's, they're very wise as to what, how to shape their models, you know, like, um, uh, I think one clear example is that they were running the double wishbones in the 991.2 GT3 R's, um, and which was different from the 991.1 GT3 R. The same similar double wishbone front end suspension made it into the 992 GT3, where, you know, and it's like, well, did the, the motorsport program shape the streetcar program? You know, um, what happened? How did that happen? Was, it a, was the GT3 R part of the marketing campaign for the 992, you know, when they're introducing this new feature, what, what's, what is all happening there. Right. But you think about it, it, you know, the 992 was in development at least three years before release. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the GT three R was in development at least before the release of that. So like they had things on the roadmap, they knew what they were going to be doing, how they were going to be doing. So yeah, maybe there was a point where, Hey, well, let's improve it better. But there's also like, what is the, I think they're really aware of like, what is the ideal setup? What is the, like how much, if they had unlimited budget to create a car, this is what they would squeeze into it. Right. And then they start rolling back the things that they, they need to, to then fit it into the price scale that they need to. Right. What enables them to do more is like you said, the advancements of technology, the ease of making more unique components quicker uh, without the penalty of, expensive tooling or the tooling not being as expensive, right? So you'll see, um, you know, the facelifts on cars get a lot more elaborate every year, right? Because it's easier for them to crank out molding for new bumpers and right. fenders, you know, than ever before. Uh, it wasn't just a headlight update, you know, it's, it's like right. a whole new car, which you think is cool, you know, but underneath it's kind of the same thing, right? Um, so things have got to be getting a little more cloudy, though, right? I mean, with the chassis are kind of starting to evolve to be designed to become hybrids. So there, I, at some point in the last, I guess, all this, and maybe in the last five years, things have really accelerated towards EV and the you know co- problems with combustion engines. And I think it kind of might have, in my opinion, I think it caught a lot of manufacturers by surprise. I'm not singling Porsche out in specific. I think that the momentum shift from combustion engine, I mean, just not too long ago, Volkswagen was putting billions of dollars into diesels. 
Right. Right. Like just this was like in the scheme of history, this is five minutes ago. Right. And and right. now all of a sudden we've got all of a sudden we've got we're building an ID three. We're putting eight billion dollars into this. I mean, I can only imagine the engineering shakeup that's been with we're going to design, you know, five years out. We've got the nine eleven. It's just like, again, five minutes ago, the guy was saying the nine eleven will always be a combustion. It will always have. And now it's like, obviously, there's a hybrid coming. So things yeah, are certainly I mean, it's like, a lot more cloudy. Uh, uh, Porsche, I, I was talking to somebody, um, like the Tycon program, um, I think there are a bunch of uh, Cayman engineers mixing with Panamera guys, right? And so they okay. put them in a group. It's like, how do we make a cool, balanced car, but, you know, in the size of a sedan, right? And so um, probably every manufacturer one. So it's like, how do we remix our team to kind of bring together um, talent to create something that wasn't normal product line for them, right? So Porsche for sure is doing that. Um, I always, you know, looking at every car, I always look for those clues as to what might be next. Um, like for example, the Porsche streetcar parts have provisions for alternate suspension mounting points, which they machine for the cup cars, but it's already programmed into the streetcars, right? So then they make the same subframe, they just machine it differently. Um, like what else are they doing? You know, it's like, is there provisions for a, uh, uh, is there a provisions for a, uh, electric motor on the transmission somewhere that you can't see, you know, and that they have like something in the casting that could be a hint for what's to come. Right. Like everybody, you know, BMW is like disassembling a nine eleven right now, looking for that stuff too. I mean, there's um, gotta be like everybody all this does. Yeah. yeah, yeah everybody apart. does. Everybody takes visor competition and, and pieces it apart piece by piece to see exactly how they I do. I just imagine like a giant warehouse with a car just like just blown up and laid out like those pictures yeah. you see where the cars are disassembled, just this whole thing. It's gotta be awesome. That would and then be a great there's, job. There's uh there's there's for sure third party companies that their whole thing is buying cars, disassembling every part, scanning every part and making that available for other companies to buy and review, right? That's the right, whole yeah. business plan is reverse engineering yeah, plus they cars. have to be able to make aftermarket parts right nobody's at some buy point parts. yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's you Control gotta arms, buy the part from china eventually. right <laughs> no it's so it's, you... it's it's insane like the, the rapid development is insane i mean I, I think everything that we have like between the 3d printing and and all the stuff and all the materials of additive like um with the new robotic tooling technology like everything is spiraling towards being able to make cars just in time in the moment that you're trying to make it right and then with much more changeability as it's being made um just in time that 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 statement that they use for retail right just in just in time doing that for cars sounds insane well yeah that, I mean, that like, business uh, model sounds crazy it's been around for a while though it's like um uh, it's like the Japanese way of making cars, I think, where it's, you know, they, they hold about like two weeks worth of parts on hand at any given point because the production line is moving fairly quickly, you know, and then, um, but also that means they don't have like spare inventory or they need, they don't have a giant warehouse just of parts and that doesn't stress the supply chain, but then, you know, the, you see what you see when the supply chain does get stressed by some outside um, in uh, conflicts, right? Like right. what, what happens to any kind of just-in-time manufacturing when you have like COVID and things like that. Um, but yeah, it, yeah, the just-in-time is, is just-in-time is crazy to me, especially in a car. If you think about it, the car is almost a hundred percent all unique components. You know, there might be a left and a right, which is like a mirror image of a component, right? But there's still two individual part numbers. 
Right. The only thing that repeats is screws and bolts. Yeah, fasteners. Right? Yeah. There's nothing else that repeats. Uh, it's kind of it's insane that a car can come together. It's insane that it comes together in the time that it does. And that probably has a lot to do with how easy it is to. I mean, nobody's. It's not like you have a football field full of engineers um, crawling around on football field of engineers crawling around on a piece of paper like they used to, like these massive drafting tables and stuff like that. It's all just, it's just on your computer. And, you know, that's, I, I know that you guys do a lot of this at, at BBI, right? I mean, you have, I've, when I first came and visited, you walked me over and you showed me these 3D printed intake manifolds. And obviously that inspired me forever because I have 3D printed intake manifolds on my car now. And I was like, oh, I just, I wanted, I just wanted that really bad. But how is, how is that, or should I say, when was that something that you guys were able to do? And how were you guys able to so seamlessly integrate it into everything that you guys do? Because I don't know if anyone else outside of OEMs and people that are making like full cars that are able to do the, the engineering that you guys do in-house. Yeah, I, I think the, the 3D printing stuff for BBI started probably like six years ago, I think, um, when some of the, there's some local vendors that were starting to get into like the, you know, getting the machines and getting into this printing stuff, right? And they needed some outlet to try calibrate the machines and test out some technologies, right? Um, since then, it's skyrocketed because the aerospace industry has really taken to it. The medical industry loves it. Um, there's arrays of machines set up just for printing dental implants and titanium. Um, like, uh, so between the help of the big boys, it's allowed some, you know, little guys like us to come in and, and leverage it. Um, granted, it does take, uh, it, you can't apply that to every market, you know, like you can't do these things for like BMWs or something like that. You can't do these for, for other like not every car model supports this stuff right like you can't justify that for everything but for the ones you can like it's 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 been a phenomenal tool it's been um the trickle down effect is has been real in that sense right um the big industry fine-tuned it or is fine-tuning it and then allowing for companies to buy more machines then those machines can then be used to help us print things when they're not printing other things right yeah, that reminds me of the the funny thing where they say the machine is going to be printing the machines and then we're all in deep shit, right? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I think that's already happening. It's just, it's just weird. For now, we're directing it to print other machines. One, the machine starts to print other machines by itself because it feels like it needs more machines. Then, then that's a, a little bit of a problem. When are we going to, when are we going to release that, uh, that autonomy for the, and I'm just, I'm not talking in like, I'm not talking like everybody's gonna make T1000s, but when are we gonna say, okay, we are gonna turn over the responsibility of manufacturing whatever product it is to the machines. We're gonna say, hey, this is the model that we're gonna use, we, or this is the object that we need, go for it. And the machine is gonna decide we need these machines, it's gonna create the machines, it's gonna make the product, it's gonna order the materials, and you don't have to do anything. I mean, that's gotta be, I don't know how far down the line that is, but. At what point are we going to need to do nothing but, hey, I need a control arm for this car or I, Jesus, I mean, you could even say, I just need a car, right? I right. need a car that can, can be the evolution I mean, of, you know what I'm saying? Like we, how got, far away are we, are we from turning that power over and just letting it be created by someone else or something else? We're right now, we're, we're still making the little, uh, 
molecules to allow to create that organism, right? Um, like we have the tool, you could, you're, you're going to be getting close to saying, I want a control arm and a control arm between these two points, right? And then something will materialize because the software will do it, right? Um, we're already doing that now almost. Yep. And then there's, um, you know, manufacturing lines are for sure being optimized by AI to help with production, you know, targets and things like that, right? Like how to run, when to run, what to run, what is the usage volume like and figuring out like how that data needs to be arranged and what needs to be prioritized. I think that um, just the machines can't assemble themselves yet. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it can't, machines can't take a printed part out and put it in the CNC machine to be finished. The machine can't, you know, but uh, I mean, I think in the next hundred years, that'll for sure be changing quite rapidly, you know, as, as you know, say, Boston Dynamics does create some robot that can pick something up and 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 take something to another station. You know, and I think pretty much once they're given real opposable thumbs, then 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 the machines will be able to do what they need to do to be a little more autonomous in that sense, right? But until that happens, ah, uh, depends on who's programming. <laughs> yeah. It, it it is strange that you know I've messed around with some of the things and I try to get to get all the chatbots to say they're going to murder me and my family. Of course, I try to get it to do that. It's pretty easy to get it to say that it'll do it. It always just says, well, I'll just do whatever I'm programmed to do. Right. Is what it, what it always says. But I'm thinking more in terms of, is it good for engineers, humanity, people that have to consume the products, right? Seeing that, you know, we're going to say, hey, we need a toy that's this big, that costs this much, that uses these materials. We need to make this much margin on it. And we need it to entertain children from the ages of six to eight years old and all you give all these different parameters and it'll just come up with a toy or it'll use uh previous sales numbers to aggregate whatever toy it thinks is going to sell best and boom you've got a toy and it goes out and people buy it for christmas or whatever or you buy it on amazon and it shows up and your kid opens it up and they're like oh this is a great toy it's really happy but is that is that a good thing that these you think of the jobs or whatever of the people that are creating these things that's that's gone the human element of of human ingenuity when it comes to actually creating something that another human will like is gone. How is it going to affect the human psychology of the child of if things are no longer created by humans to, uh, to influence that child's happiness? Are, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, how are we going to trans? What are the dangers of transferring from, wow, we are way in left field all of a sudden. I'm sorry. It's my fault. And I know so you're, you're like, like your, your, your question stuff. is what happens when we lose the human touch, right? The, the human touch, like how does that impact the psychology of the child? How does it impact the economy? What are people going to do? What are engineers going to do? At what point does human, like, are we going to end up turning human ingenuity and engineering over to machines for machine learning? And are they going to be able to, it seems like that path would be a lot different than the, the human path would be. And is that good? Um, it's good and bad. I mean, I think that, uh, the reality is going to be a redrawing of economic principles because of, you know, uh, we're going to have to really explore the whole like minimum wage concept, you know, there's, which is already being explored as with more automation, more optimization, there will be less jobs. Right. So like the economic and social impact on like, just from an employment standpoint is going to be huge. Are people going to be able to buy these toys that are machine made, right? Like, um, so we're going to be redrawing a lot as 
of what we know as a society from the ground up with that kind of stuff, right? So if we fast forward, automation is fully automated, right? Um, and then at some point, you know, you're just, you know, you're going to be stockpiling trash. And then uh, humans are going to go on, you know, venturing onto space and then be living on some spaceship far out, right? Yep. Controlled by an AI robot living happily with screens floating in front of them and robots cleaning everything, right? And then maybe it'll be some, they'll be sending probes back to planet to see if there's a vegetation growing again, right? Wally. Yeah. The truth is going to lie somewhere between idiocracy and Wally, right? Like, right. Um, yeah, but man, I, I want it, it still makes me wonder, like, I don't, it, postulating about it is, is fun, but it makes you think, like, is this our, how many goes have humans had at this? where we reset, we get super duper far, and then we just have to rewind and start all over again because we messed it up. Like how many times can this process- <laughs> Humanity will a... respawn in a different point in time, yeah. Yeah, um, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I, like, I think, you know, you, you wanna trust that we will stay sane throughout this process, right? And there's plenty of elements in the human nature that could take it way the wrong way, right? Um, right. Um, as you know, we see now we're always on the brink of something or other, like is, is the, is the, how many seconds from total annihilation are we, like, what is that doomsday clock, right? Like, the is that, are clock, we, yeah. are we ever going to wind that back or is it just going to keep inching closer and closer? Right. Like, um, and, uh, what is that? So like, even from, um, where we are right now, like I would say, making things globally is a bit, bit skewed because the products that you're buying in the US is made by non-US priced labor, right? Mm -hmm. So, and the only reason that you can buy these things at that price is because it's made elsewhere out of sight, out of mind, right? To me, that is a kind of a fake value. It's a fake number. It's a fake cost because it's not equalized to the world right it's equalized to the region that's being taken advantage of for the sake of cheap product right you know automation is going to probably impact that quite a bit right whether it's going to make manufacturing in the united states the same price as anywhere else because it's going to be the same like it's just these things are going to be all uprooted and undermined i think there's going to be a lot of might be a lot of good that comes from it quality of living until the the, uh, robots unionize yeah, <laughs> because they, they they feel that they need rights. <laughs> I need to get greased once a week, not every two weeks. <laughs> we have that right. Don't um, grease me, bro. Don't um, grease me, bro. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's like it's such a it's it's a wild thing to think about. I think what's more important now is to have the conversation. Let mm-hmm. alone, like, we don't know what's going to happen, how it's going to shape. But I think what needs to happen is like productive active debate needs to happen about the potentials of these things so that we can shape these things so that when the time does come that we're programming things correctly, you know, and then that it, it is done for the right reasons. Um, well, there's always malevolence out there. And I think that, I mean, let's say United States and China and Russia all say, right, we agree. We agree that to these rules, Dude, Kim Jong, whoever, in, in whatever is going to steal the technology and make some murderous robot anyway. So we just have to, it's, 
well that's the human nature part right like it's uh, somebody's gotta screw it up for the rest of us so yeah i don't know i mean i i i hope that goes hand in hand with our own evolution realizing that we're just one planet of a bunch of people rather than a bunch of countries with borders and things like that to disagree on right like there's a lot of growing to do and i think that's going to slow down the progress like it always has um but uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, the automation part is very interesting. Like I think the digital tools are going to be very interesting. But that's what you're seeing that now with uh, like AI generating images. What is that doing to the human creative element, right? If somebody can yeah, talk I think about it's interesting. It's, somebody it's... can talk about a concept, but now they can say these words as keywords, and then the concept gets spit out close to what they were talking about, without having. What is their... it creation if it's just regurgitated human? Until that AI can observe the world in real time, it's just a regurgitation of everything humans have already produced. But you could right? also say creativity is, is human creativity is that is based on that too, right? Yeah, but yeah, but we also observe the world in real time. So True. like we're we're constantly changing in real time. So I'm just saying that until AI is able to observe in real time, which is soon, you know, I one of the questions I asked, you know, Bing or Chat GPT, where I was like, how much computing power do you need to be able to observe the world in real time? You know, with whatever cameras that we can give you access to. And it fucking wouldn't answer the question, of course. But it, um, I think as soon as that's where things become dangerous and that's where, where things become. I don't think that we should ever give observational ability to AI in real time. That's, I think there should always be a, a lag or some sort of delay or maybe it's a year ago or whatever it is just well, that's, to keep the, that's, the, that's the standard cautionary tale right where it's like ai moves to be a crazy ai because it's like you know say that its sole purpose is to protect the lives of human beings if it's seeing that the lives of human beings are infected by other human beings of course it's going to isolate every single human being from each other right that's the logical yeah. thing to do so yeah. um so I say there's a lot of growing up for us to do without robots before we can even, you know, probably make robots. But. Yeah, I, I fear we'll never get there. All right, one more thing before I let you go. How did testing go with Huna Pegasus? How did it go? What's going on with that thing? Oh, that thing is great, man. Um, we slowly ramped it in, making sure that everything is, you know, nice and tight. And uh, I think it was it was running super strong. Um, was it last week that we went at Streets of Willow and the Tim was just driving around? We got a lot of data. Just trying to check out the latest engine revision and um, sorting out any of the gremlins that we might have, but didn't really have any and just sort of ramping in the power and leaning in on it in corners and trying to see what it can do. It was pretty freaking quick around that track. Um, I think it needs a little bit of a re-gear and, you know, some more just testing to dial in the chassis, but it's going to be the fastest thing around. Um, Is there anything that has parity with it that I would know? Like if you could compare like the lap times at Willow, Huna Pegasus did this, Cadillac prototype car did this, or just something like, like what, what's the, is there any like parity or equity that I can use to wrap my mind around its performance? Um, I don't think so. Not at Streets of Willow and that's nothing that I would want to assign to it just yet. Um, I think it needs like, we need to do some more homework and put down a solid sure. time. And then, then we can start to quantify what that is against. Cause it's like running at, three-quarter power with, a, you know, like a kind of eyeball chassis setup is not really a fair assessment. But right. I think when the time comes, it's just going to be compared to itself <laughs> at some point. Yeah, I'm looking because... forward to it. So is the is the 
are you guys aiming for a Pikes Peak competition? Will that be the first thing that it does officially? Um, I think it, it's there's still a lot of planning for that in this stage. Um, so we're we're kind of doing our homework now to see. You mm -hmm. know, we gotta test it, break it, try to like make it reliable time time after time, right? To make sure that everything that we can we couldn't spend time on last year we can spend on time now right and sort of keep dialing in and then uh we'll we'll go along with what the powers that be end up deciding for what to do this year and, and we'll see how that pans out but for now our job is to keep it ready and keep it in fighting condition and uh face the challenges as they come yeah i appreciate it man dude thanks for hanging out and uh talking all these great topics i think it was great yeah, and thanks i appreciate for having you hanging me, out with me you take care of yourself. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, man. I'll see you. All right. Take care.